Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10, season four of Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell. Today, we return to the Voices of H. Kaya series, and our guest is Major Jordan Eddington, who served as the operations officer of 1st Battalion, 8th Marines during the Kabul evacuation. We discuss a wide range of topics, including the planning for the H. Kaya mission, the fight for the airfield, gate operations, the Abbey Gate bombing, working with the Army, the supposed beef between 1-8 and 2-1, command relationships at H. Kaya, and more. Here's Jordan's bio. Jordan attended the U.S. Naval Academy, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in political science. He graduated in 2010 and commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. After completing the basic school and infantry officer course, he reported to 2nd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion. From 2011 through 2014, he served as a platoon commander in both Bravo and Charlie companies and attended the Army Reconnaissance Course and Cavalry Leaders Course. In 2014, Jordan deployed as an independent platoon commander with Battalion Landing Team 1st Battalion 6 Marines, 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit, which was among the first Marine Corps units to support the fight against ISIS. In 2015, Jordan reported to Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island, where he was assigned to 2nd Recruit Training Battalion. While with the battalion, he served as a series commander with Echo Company and as the company commander of Hotel Company. He was then selected to serve as the battalion executive officer of Support Battalion. In 2018, he attended Maneuver Captain's Career Course in Fort Benning, Georgia, where he graduated in the top five of his class. In 2018, Jordan was assigned to 1st Battalion 8th Marines, where he assumed command of Charlie Company. In 2019, he deployed with the company as part of Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force Crisis Response Africa. Charlie Company served as the primary crisis response force for the United States Africa Command Area of Responsibility. Following the deployment, Jordan was selected to serve as the operations officer for 1-8. During Jordan's time as the operations officer, 1-8 was redesignated as a battalion landing team and in 2021 deployed as part of the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit. In August 2021, the MU would head to Kabul, Afghanistan, where it would support Operation Allies Refuge, the largest non-combatant evacuation in U.S. history. In June 2022, Jordan was assigned as the commanding officer of Recruiting Station in Houston, Texas, where he currently serves. I'd like to note that as the HKIA series develops, I plan to include the perspectives of U.S. soldiers, National Guardsmen, airmen, and members of the State Department. My hope is that these additional perspectives will provide a fuller picture of the evacuation and help us better understand the challenges, tragedies, and triumphs of those fateful days in August 2021. Two quick admin notes. This episode was recorded in late February 2023, and the usual disclaimers for active duty service members apply here. Jordan's views are his own and do not represent those of the United States Marine Corps, the Departments of the Navy or Defense, or any U.S. government entity. And now, our chat with Major Jordan Eddington. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's really great to have you and looking forward to talking about your experiences at HKIA. Yeah, Damien, thanks for having me on. So many of our listeners, perhaps most of our listeners, are Marines and have heard of the billet of operations officer, but not everybody knows what that is. And you were the operations officer for 1st Battalion, 8th Marines at HKIA. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what does an operations officer do? I think an operations officer kind of does a little bit of everything, right? The primary role of the operations officer is to tactically employ the battalion to ensure that the battalion is set up for success in terms of a, a training continuum. But you also have to delve into other realms. Like you have to 
understand how how the logistics process works, how the maintenance process works, how the communication process works, because all of those things and factors and at some level impact your ability to tactically employ the battalion or advise your commander on what the best tactical decisions are for your unit. You know, so operations officer, I feel like does a little bit of everything, but my primary focus was making sure the battalion was ready to be employed tactically and then employing them tactically. Prior to becoming the operations officer, <clears throat> you had spent your fleet time as a light armor reconnaissance officer, rifle company commander. You also spent some time at the recruit depot, I think at Paris Island. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, correct. How did these experiences affect, if at all, your your decision-making process the way you you try to employ the battalion as the OPSO prior to, to H. Kaya? You know, I think my experience at LAR gave me a pretty good understanding of how to conduct motorized operations. And I think that is something that a lot of, you know, traditional infantry officers don't necessarily get. So, you know, being able to understand how to how to use things of that nature, I think definitely impacted my thought process when when thinking about how to maneuver the battalion around and how to use the different assets that we had, especially in the BLT with a with an entire LAR company, a reconnaissance company, uh, and then you know, our, our combined anti-armor team, our cat platoon. So I think that's what LAR gave me. From my time at Paris Island, I think I tell people this all the time. I think Paris Island taught me how to be a real officer. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, and I'm sure everybody who has been a platoon commander in the past will understand this. When you're a platoon commander, you get really tight with your Marines, sometimes probably too tight. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing when you're a platoon commander. But as you continue to progress in your career and, and the scale and scope of your you know, responsibilities and authorities expands, you don't necessarily have that luxury anymore. And I would argue that, you know, nor should you. So at Paris Island, there's a very unique culture down there, right? It's some people refer to it as the hat and belt culture. And, you know, while I was there, I got to work with a lot of great Marines outside of the infantry. So I think that kind of broadened my my scope as far as what people outside of my immediate occupational specialty bring to the fight. So in, in one way, Paris Island forced me to create a layer of separation between myself and my Marines. Because if you're an officer and you buy into that hat and belt culture, some weird things can happen, right? Because it quickly turns into like the Stanford prison experiment where weird things become normal. And then like the further that you let that, you allow that boundary to be pushed, you know, you eventually end up with a kid jumping out of a third story stairwell or kids put in dryers or like just weird, weird stuff that if you were to put yourself in any other location and situation and you did something like that, like you, you would immediately know it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so it forced me to create that layer of separation. And it also, I think, gave me a different perspective, you know, from being the the young, like cocky infantry officer that, you know, where we're the tip of the spear and everyone else is just like a pogue who supports and, you know, make, making me realize that it doesn't matter what your MOS is. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female, there are tons of Marines who are really good at their jobs, who you know, if you are able to leverage those Marines, your unit as a whole will be so much better because if you understand how to employ people to the, the maximum of their capabilities. So Paris Island, I think, turned me into a real officer. And, you know, tying that back into, you know, how did that impact me as an opso? You know, I was able to, 
I hope I was able to create really strong relationships with all of the all of the company commanders and to a certain extent some of the platoon commanders and and some of the XOs and but I think I was able to kind of maintain that degree of separation which was a good thing because it still gave me the maneuver space to to flip a switch if I needed to which I I did not do very often but I still had that that's that little distance where I could you know instead of being you know someone who you could drink a beer with I could still turn it on and still get what I need to get accomplished, you know, in whatever situation I was in. Sure. What was your deployment with the 24th Mew like prior to heading to H Kaya? What had you been up to? What had you been doing? I totally forgot to, to mention my time as a, as a company commander in one eight. And, you know, the thing that I'll pull out about that, and it, it does relate to the 24 Mew, is I did the uh, SP MAGTAF Crisis Response Africa uh, deployment as the, the crisis response company. And the 24th Mew was our headquarters element for that. So there had been a lot of, I, I would say, trust developed between some of the senior leadership on the 24th Mew and, Mew and 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. Like the Mew CO on the SP MAGTAF was the same CO that was on our 24th Mew deployment. The OPSO of the 24th Mew was my battalion commander on the deployment. Some of the staff members in the 24th Mew and in CLB 24 were on the same deployment with me as a company commander. So there was a lot of trust that was developed. There was a lot of implicit communication that was just there because we had been working together for almost four years at that point, um, which is very rare for yeah. a group of like leaders to be in the same units at the same time for it to line where you do two back-to-back deployments together. So prior to HKIA, I mean, it was kind of a, a standard, standard Mew. You know, I had done, this was my second Mew. I did one as a Lieutenant. Uh, so I kind of understood, you know, how the workup would go, you know, the stresses that were going to be put on us, you know, in training, we were meant to be in the, the year, the UCOM AOR. So we did an exercise in the UK. We did some things in Norway we did some things in Spain, Greece, you know, we're, we're planning for, you know, ball tops and all these like, you know, European specific exercises. And then around the May timeframe, you know, as we're, you know, just getting different Intel reports and, and digging around in you know, different shared drives of different units, we start to kind of get a funny feeling about this Afghanistan withdrawal thing, right? Because the timeline had already been established that the U.S. would be out of Afghanistan. I don't, I don't remember what the original date was, right? But, you know, it ended up being August 31st. But so we're, we're thinking about this. And, you know, during the workup we had done, my op section had done a little bit of kind of just like planning to put on the shelf for a Neo in Lebanon, right? That was always like the big thing in UCOM, like the Neo Lebanon, like we have to be ready. So we had, we had looked at Neos. We were, we were familiar with it. But, you know, we, we didn't really anticipate anything like that. So, but yeah, we started to get some indications and warnings that, you know, there may be something that we should be ready for. So after the workday was over for about two weeks, uh, I had the primary staff members, myself, my three alpha, my ops chief, and we would go into the BLT planning space, dial in the Marines from the, uh, the, the staff from the other ship. Uh, I was on the EWO, they were on the, uh, the San Antonio. We just kind of play, we just sketched out some stuff, you know, what if we, we did estimates of supportability and like, you know, the, the frame that we tried to couch the planning under was 
if we have to do a neo in Afghanistan, where would we do it, and what would we need to bring with us? So, you know, we talked about you know seizing the Kandahar airfield. We talked about going to Masri Al Sharif. We talked about opening up an expeditionary airfield in the middle of nowhere. We talked about going into Bagram. We talked about going into Hkaya. We talked about going to the embassy in Kabul. So we had you know all these force packages and plans and products just kind of on the shelf. So we did that for about two weeks and you know we kind of set it aside. We go to Greece, we do some stuff in Greece, and then end of May, June timeframe, we get directed to go into the CENCOM AOR just to move us a little bit closer to this Afghanistan thing, because I think people are starting to notice the same thing that we're noticing. We do a couple of pretty significant exercises. We do a TACRA theater amphibious combat rehearsal, splitting the BLT between Jordan and Saudi Arabia, with the preponderance being in Saudi Arabia, and basically the entire MU offloaded to kind of bust some rust and just get after it for a little while. That ended up being, that tacker ended up being probably the best training event to prepare the battalion for, or at least from a command and control perspective, prepare the battalion to do what we did in Afghanistan. Because in, you know, in, in traditional military fashion, the things that we needed to get ashore, you know, didn't get ashore because, you know, surface connectors break down or, you know, the tractor trailers that are hauling some of our equipment from the beach, you know, six hours inland breakdown. So we ended up doing the command and control for the entire MU was centralized. The BLT's COC that we set up, you know, it was, it, it became stressful at times just because of the sheer volume of things that were happening, right? Because we were running range control. My gunner had done a great job and basically recreated 29 palms in the middle of the desert of Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, we had aircraft constantly flying in and out. We had CLB running, you know, convoys and doing live fire ranges. You know, our whole battalion minus one company was doing everything that an infantry battalion is capable of, you know, from shooting artillery to, you know, conducting free fall parachute jumps with the recon guys, doing company live fire attacks, our, our platoon live fire attacks. So, you know, it, it was a little stressful because it was the first time we had done anything of that scale with incorporating external units. And we didn't have a lot of the things, like I, like I said. So we ended up basically doing C2 with push pins, maps, and whiteboards. And that's essentially what we used in Afghanistan. Like I, I used a, a whiteboard that I, I drew, some, uh, drew some lines on. And I knew how I was employing up to 10, 11 maneuver units based on what was going on, what I had on this whiteboard. Yeah. I wrote five paragraph orders on the whiteboard and briefed, like, briefed people. It's truly um, analog. Yeah, 100%. But so that training event was significant for the battalion, at least for, like I said, from a command and control perspective, because I think it it helped us refine and, and refresh a lot of the TTPs that we hadn't used in a while uh, and just develop some new things to better control not only the BLT, but other elements as well. So the tacker is complete. We get back on the ships. There's some friction between the Marines and the Navy, you know, from a command relationship standpoint. The commander of 515 once a Marine or Naval unit enters his AO, like a MU, he assumes tactical and operational control of that unit. I don't think the Navy fully grasped that, at least some of the elements of the MU. As this thing is progressing, it's clear that things are becoming, there's there's a sense of urgency that's, that's going on. And we start going in VTCs, you know, with the CENTCOM commander and the Marsant, AFCENT, RSENT, all the all the CENTCOM two, three, four-star generals, you know, we kind of realized that this is, uh, if we go, this is going to be something significant. 
So the decision's made to offload the battalion in Kuwait to pre-stage just in case. I believe it was, you know, the decision was made in like July, maybe early July, mid-July, but we didn't actually get the BLT aggregated in Kuwait until the beginning of August, I want to say. So that's, I know that was a long answer, but I, I, that's kind of what was happening uh, on the Mew as we led up to that point. That's helpful. And I think great context. Just to return to the training you guys were doing pre-HKIA, you talk about the work you're doing on, on C2. Were there any exercises or events geared specifically toward a NEO, you know, doing evacuation control center operations, airfield security, things like that? Yeah, once we got to Kuwait, we did a series of full-scale rehearsals of what we envisioned, what we envisioned the NEO looking like. Our original plan that we developed, you know, with the MU and with CLB was to actually use Abbeygate as the primary entry point for evacuees by constructing a series of obstacles that would help funnel the people to us, to the ECC. From the ECC, they would flow to a comfort area, which was on the western portion of the HKIA complex. You know, from there, we would get the people to the military terminal, which was up in North HKIA. And then, you know, we'd, we'd fly them out in airplanes and it would be this orderly process. So we did several of those. We did several. We actually integrated with the Air Force guys who secure the perimeter of Al Jaber. So we had Marines working on perimeter security with the guys that do it for a living. And, you know, when we thought we were doing our due diligence in, in preparation, and I think we were to a certain extent, where I think I could have done a better job and I should have done a better job is incorporating some sort of green cell into our planning calculus and our rehearsals. Our assumption, which which never really changed, was that this would be a relatively orderly process. And I think we pulled on the experience and the after actions from the, the, Be- the Beirut NEO or the Lebanon NEO that had occurred in the early 2000s which was a relatively orderly process. For the most part, the infrastructure of the state supported the external military entities that came into Lebanon. And, you know, it was a relatively clean process for those guys. From what I understand, like the after actions I've seen, some of the the presentations I've gotten. So I think that was, that kind of maybe gave us a bias towards that occurring. So framing your expectations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We actually did have one rehearsal, which, you know, we thought went horribly wrong. You know, the the Marines as role players got a little rowdy and uh, basically like a big fist fight broke out. And like, you know, it's like cool. Like you could see the boys, like, you know, they're just doing what Marines do. <laughs> um, and it's like, man, like, uh, look at them. Like, just getting after it. Like, all right, let's get them back organized, get them back in line. That would never happen. And it, it happened. <laughs> it happened for, you know, 17 straight days. So, I mean, we had rehearsed everything we could rehearse. We had rehearsed our, our force package employment. We had rehearsed how we were going to stage our gear, how we we're going to build our pallets, how quickly could we do it? Like, if we had to leave quicker than the, the six-hour tether that we were on, could we do it, right? And we got to the point where we could get the first few elements, you know, Alpha, Charlie, this, you know, the snipers, the engineers, like whatever our first force package was. I mean, we could, from time of, you know, alert to everyone stage, we got it down to like, you know, an hour and 45 minutes or something. And, you know, our, we were, our worry became how fast are the buses going to get here to take us to, to take us to Ali Asalim to get on C-17 and go. Uh, so we did that for about two straight weeks in preparation for actually going in. When the HKIA mission finally comes down, how long had you been the OPSO? 
almost two years. So you'd been in the seat for a while. Yeah. And then, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of the timelines here, but it sounds like on 12 August, you get the word, the Mew will start landing forces in Kabul. And then by 13 August, you're on the ground in Afghanistan. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So the night of the 12th, myself and my ops chief were about to shut it down for the night. It was probably like 2100. And, you know, just because, I don't know, we, we kind of had this funny feeling. We went over to the Muse COC just to check and see how things were going, right? And I think they had President Biden's speech on where, you know, he was, you know, he essentially said, you know, in, in 24 hours, there'll be Marines who are pre-positioned in CENTCOM are going to be in Kabul to, you know, assist with the evacuation. So we kind of looked at each other and we're like, yeah, well, I guess that's that's us. I guess we're going. Um, so no one like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, this dramatic moment, like someone calls and it's like, you know, assemble the cat. And <laughs> it's like, happening. You know, it's, yeah. It's like, you know, the, the CENTCOM commander and, and he's like, you know, you, you boys are going in. And it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. It was like a, a speech that we watched on a little TV. And then we went to talk to the Mew Ops section. And while we were there, Transcom called and things started to get a little chaotic. So, you know, they were like, you need to, you guys are leaving tomorrow at noon or something like that. And we're like, okay, like we already have the force packages, but they were like, but you need to send a different force package or there's only X number of C-17s available. So we had to do some recalculations and like make sure the word got passed. And it was like, once we finished one thing, another call would come and it'd be like, no, 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 actually you're going to leave at 08 and you're going to bring two rifle companies. You're going to leave at 06 and you're going to bring one rifle company. So me and my ops chief, we ended up pretty much staying up all night long, figuring that out, issuing the orders to the Marines who were going to actually fly in with the the lead elements. Mm -hmm. That was the whole night of the 12th. I went back to my room I packed what I hadn't packed yet. And then we were on the basketball courts at Al Jabber around zero six loading magazines, making sure we had all of our, you know, our comm equipment, our ammunition, all the all the things. And then we were on a bus to Ali Asalim and in typical military fashion. Uh, we ended up waiting there for twelve hours. We get on the aircraft, we're checking the pallets that they load onto the aircraft, and there were some some of the pallets weren't the things that we had requested to be on that aircraft. So that was an issue. And that was pretty much a constant theme for getting the BLT into Afghanistan was the things that we had planned for, the things that we had needed, that we had pre-staged, that we expected to be ready for us on the ground in Afghanistan. We're just, a lot of the stuff just wasn't there. So get on the plane, we land in Hkaya. It's late on the 13th, early on the 14th, you know, between midnight and zero two, we get there try to get, you know, an hour or two of, of sleep. And then we're, we're right back up because we, we need to get the lay of the land. We need to validate some of the assumptions that we had made for planning. Yeah. So that's kind of what the infill looked like for me. A few follow-on questions. What's going on in your head when you get the word, this is happening? Is it excitement? Is it, all right, we got a lot of work ahead of us. What's what's happening in, in the ops's head? It's excitement, I think. You know, I, I played football my whole life, you know, from the time I was seven until I finished college. And you kind of get that same feeling in the pit of your stomach, right, right before you run out of the tunnel uh, onto the field. Right. So it's like nervous excitement. You know, you're prepared. But as the as the opso, like one of the things I always tried to do was use my emotions and use my voice as tools, you know, in my leadership 
like toolkit, I guess. So as the opso, I think you always have to be calm, cool, and collected. You can't get too high. You can't get too low. It's just like any other you know, leadership position. If, if people see you freaking out, that's contagious. People will see you get too excited. Yeah, that, that's contagious. So try to stay internally, going through a lot of emotions. I'm excited. I'm nervous, right? I've been very close to executing like these kind of crisis contingency operations numerous times in my career, but you know, it always, it never like, right. You know, right as you're about to take off, you know, it, the mission's off, like whatever. Right. Yeah. So excited, nervous, a little anxious because I knew we still had a lot of, a lot of work to do. So, you know, I'm always trying to think about this is step one and two. How do I need to posture the force for steps three, four, five, six, you know, so sure. on. So that's kind of the, the range of emotions that I was going through at that moment. The other follow-on question was, you mentioned that there's a disconnect, there are communication mishaps between you and maybe some of the supporting elements. The BLT is asking for these things, but we're getting this, or we need this at this time, but it's going to be delayed. Could you characterize or just give your thoughts on why you think these mishaps and failures to maybe support to the degree or, or as adequately as you've requested, why these things were happening? Yes, I'll talk about the planning process kind of leading up to our insertion. So we were doing daily, sometimes multiple times a day, VTC calls with these adjacent and supporting commands throughout CENTCOM. And, you know, I was thinking about this a lot yesterday, and I cannot remember the name of the command that was supposed to get us the logistical support that we requested to be pre-positioned in HKIA. But I mean, I, I heard... I physically saw the CENTCOM commander order this. It was an army two or three star. I think it was a two star to have this, the stuff that we needed in Afghanistan by X date. I don't know if it was because of the the bureaucratic military process, if it was because the planners at that unit assumed that things wouldn't happen as quickly as they did and they had more time to get it in. You know, it could have been aircraft availability. It, It could have been, you know, just numerous things. But the stuff that we asked for, you know, the, the materials to, to build additional obstacles, the tents, you know, that we planned on housing the evacuees in, the additional food resources, things that you became critical for us, like the baby formula, diapers, things like that, that you would need to support a humanitarian operation just weren't there when we needed them initially. Those things eventually got flown into us. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't want to speculate or or cast stones, but that was kind of a consistent theme, at least for the first uh, 72 to 120 hours on the ground was the things that we needed, the people that were actually conducting the operations at the time, we just didn't get, which was, you know, unfortunate, but that's what Marines do. We, we, we do more with less. We, uh, I think it's, it's like our greatest strength and our greatest weakness is our ability to just figure it out and get it done. What was your understanding of the situation on the ground before you got to HKI? And then how did that align? How did the reality align with or differ from what you'd been told, what you expected? Yeah. So I, when I was thinking about this question yesterday, I, I couldn't help but laugh. We had sent my gun, my battalion gunner into Kabul a few weeks prior to us getting there to kind of be our, our liaison on the ground to do some security kind of threat assessment stuff. And we would have like a daily phone call with him. In the evening, you know, just he'd kind of give us a wrap up of, of the day and we'd tell him what things we were planning on and some of the things he would tell us would force us to adjust and, you know, so on and so forth, the planning cycle. But I mean, 
in HKIA, they were, you know, I think like the day of our insertion, they had like a 5k fun run planned on the base. Like it's, it's the world is like collapsing around them and they're doing a 5k fun run. I mean, they made flyers for it. Like it was crazy. So when we get there, right, it was like the calm before the storm. Like you get there and everything is still functioning. Like the, all the contracted, all the contracted workers are still there. Like the chow halls, the food's good. The food's hot. There's cold drinks. Like there's little cafes and little, like there's little shops where they sell like, like I don't know, Afghan knickknacks and things. So, I mean, it was a very relaxed atmosphere. And I remember walking to the jock. I think this was the morning of the 15th when everything kind of started to go crazy and just thinking like, I wonder what it feels like or put myself in the shoes of someone who, you know, maybe was in Paris before it was declared an open city and like the, the Nazis rolled in or like, what was it? What was the atmosphere in the city like? And it was just like life was, you know, operating as normal. I think people knew something was going to happen, but no one, no one thought it was going to happen as quickly uh, and as chaotically as it did. What was your reading of, of the terrain around HKIA? Did it pose any concerns for you? Yes, absolutely. So where HKIA is, it's kind of in the heart of Kabul. Kabul's in a valley with mountainous terrain to the north and to the south. So there's very advantageous ground essentially surrounding the airfield for you to employ any you know larger weapons, mortars, indirect fire assets, rockets, things of those nature heavy machine guns. And then in the city itself, there were numerous 10 to 20 story buildings that also created some issues from a a force protection standpoint, because those buildings were excellent firing points for medium machine guns and, and small arms to engage anyone who was in the airfield itself. Then for HKIA proper, in the north, there's a major east-west running MSR. I think it's a four lane, basically highway that is maybe 10 feet away from the Alaska barriers that are kind of formed the outer perimeter of HKIA. You know, so a lot of challenges outside and then internal to HKIA, it's broken into eight to 10 additional compounds inside the, the overall perimeter. And each compound is secure. Each compound has its own access point. So you can't just move freely throughout the airfield. And then in the, the very southern portion of the airfield, kind of adjacent to Abbey Gate, is a, a civilian airport, right? So like, like BWI, like, you know, here in, in Houston and like, like Bush Airport, like Hobby, you know, with a domestic and international terminal. Not a whole lot of, you know, like perimeter security type stuff down there. And then kind of ringing the whole airfield were a series of guard towers that were external to the actual perimeter, which were manned by Afghan forces. Uh, and then on the inside, you know, there was the Turkish military, and I, I can't remember what other nation were in charge of like the internal security of like North HKIA proper. If anyone has used this terminology, but we called it the blue submarine. So on the maps that we had of HKIA, each compound was a different color code. And North HKIA, which encompassed the area that we operated out of and the runway itself, it looks like a submarine and it was blue. So we called it like the blue submarine. So we would for reference point, we would say like it's you know it's on the it's on the front of the submarine, right? As a, as a kind of a quick reference to to password quickly. So a lot of interesting terrain, both external and internal to HKIA itself, uh, which which presented challenges to any force that wants to to go in there. It sounds like a a nightmare to try to secure and defend, and that's prior <laughs> yeah. to all hell breaking loose, right? 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So you're based out of the, the joint operations center, the jock. Can you describe what the center looks like, how it operates? Uh, <clears throat> my understanding is you've got lots of TV screens displaying different parts of the airport and such. How large was your operations section? You know, how many Marines are working with you in this place? 515, which is also designated as a joint task force crisis response headquarters, had a lot of their people already in Kabul when we got there to kind of establish the initial command and control footprint, if you will. So the building that we, we were in, there were spaces for pretty much everyone, every unit, every element had their own internal like planning space to work out of. And then the jock itself was a, a pretty large room, you know, maybe 25 meters by 20 meters. One of the walls was covered in TV screens, which were showing, you know, the things that you see in a COC, like the, a map of the airfield, different CCTV feeds that were uh, from the CCTV camera network that were all, all over the airfield, primarily looking uh, at the gates. You know, we had our, our drone feeds up there, and that was like what 515 was using. And then in the middle of the room was like 515 watch standers and staff. I think CLB had a little portion over there. The MU proper had a little portion. And the BLT was in the, if you're, if you're facing the TV screens, the BLT was in the back right corner. And we had a computer, uh, a phone, and then the, the other stuff we brought with us, you know, so our, our maps, our whiteboards, things of that nature. But, you know, I, for something as chaotic as it became, um, you know, and I was alluding to the calm before the storm, like when we land, they're like, oh, have you done your SAR to get on the computers? And like, you know, I don't have, I don't have time to do a SAR. Like I didn't, I don't think anyone from the BLT logged into a computer the whole time we were in HKIO. No, I'm lying. We did. Cause I had to build some PowerPoint slides for a, like when we first got there for like changing the, the route of how we were going to move the evacuees or, or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it was, and then on the opposite side, you know, there were the army unit that was on the ground in H Kyle in Kabul was a unit called task force polar bear from the 10th mountain. Those guys are awesome. The 10th mountain soldiers were phenomenal. I mean, and they, they did a lot of really great things uh, for us, uh, but they were actually in the middle of a rip with uh, another unit, Task Force Wild Boar. So these are company size elements from a battalion that's based in Camp Buring that are basically like the internal security for the embassy and for, for HKI proper. There was another army unit, Task Force Talon, was the air wing of, of that force. And they kind of were on the opposite side of the room from us. Uh, and then there was an, like a little offset room where the Department of State folks were working out of, right? So Everyone was in the same space, but it, I think it took us a while to break out of our little bubbles, so to speak, and like for pe someone to physically go over to, you know, talk to the Department of State because you get sucked into the little the little space you're in. And we had none of us had worked together before, so the space facilitated the things that we needed to do, but it just took us a little while to kind of develop the the habits of uh, making it work properly. You don't recall any sort of leveling meeting where you're getting everybody together and saying, you know, OPSO from 1-8, meet this person from Department of State or meet this person from the task force or whatever it was. Not, I don't recall a, in a formal setting, 
but a lot of the liaising had already kind of been done. Like I had Got been it. over to Buring to talk to the 10th mountain guys, like their battalion commander, their XO, their OPSO. You know, so I, I knew uh, some of the people I had exchanged emails with them in particular from like the army and from uh, the 515 JTF. But, you know, the department of state, that was like, you know, uh, an informal, like, Hey, my name's Jordan. I need you to do this for me right now. <laughs> That's kind of how that went. But now I don't recall like a big leveling meeting. No. So according to one eight battalion commander during the Neo, this is a quote, the first two days, and I added 14 and 15 August, everyone's manning their position. Security is stable, just business as usual, end quote. So what were you doing these two days? Were there any tough situations, any tough decisions you, you faced at this point? Yeah, so on the 14th, we kind of got the lay of the land, validated some of our planning assumptions. And we realized that because we didn't have some of the things that we requested, we were going to have to kind of tweak how we were going to flow the evacuees in. So I, I spoke to Abbey Gate was kind of our primary. And I think we realized just based off of the distance and based off of what that gate looked like at the time, that that was not really a feasible option for us and for what we had on the ground. So we we transitioned for us to use Northgate as our primary entrance point for the evacuees. The way the gate is designed, it really required very small modifications to make it to facilitate the things that we wanted to do, right? So we, in doing so, we had to coordinate with a bunch of external units to create roadblocks, uh, essentially, to create a path for, to move the evacuees to the place we needed them to go. Because once you get past the gate, you know, you can, they can essentially go anywhere. So we moved vehicles and like barriers to just create this, this path for the folks to get to the actual terminal where we were going to, where CLB had determined that this is the best place to actually set up the the ECC, which ended up being in the military terminal. So most of the day was spent doing that and like, you know, building slides for it to brief to my CO, then brief to the MU commander and the MU commander to say yes. And then, you know, to go talk to the, the one-star Marine general and get him to say, yeah, this is a good plan. Then to, you know, then go, you know, let the Marines know and then put the things and pieces in place to make that happen. You know, while we were doing that, concurrent actions that were occurring, Alpha Company was on the ground with us at that point. I mean, I, I think at that point we had 197 Marines from the BLT on the ground. And I think that's a combination of Alpha Company, some of Charlie Company, and like a squad-ish sized element of Bravo Company. Mm -hmm. So that's what the 14th basically was, right? And that happens until two or three in the morning. I go back and I get an hour or two of sleep. And then I'm back in the, making sure all the things are in place. And that leads us up to the 15th. The 15th is the day when a lot of the chaos started. So, you know, in the jock, you know, we're hearing that the Taliban has entered Kabul and we're expecting there to be like a fight for the city. That didn't occur, right? I think once the Taliban came in, everyone kind of threw down their weapons. The government collapsed. I want to say it was like the night of the 14th. Maybe it was the 15th, the embassy full, like rolled up and brought all the staff, like flew all the staff into uh, and We we set up our, the CLB set up their ECC inside of the terminal. We had some Marines over there for security and for searching. I want to say that was the night of the 14th. And then, you know, the morning of the 15th, the Taliban are in, in Kabul. External security collapses, essentially. 
maybe midday, mid-afternoon. And the decision is made by uh, my battalion commanders. Like we're not waiting for uh, this standard turnover process. We're, we're putting people on the gates right now. Uh, so we go out, we do an assessment or we, we basically tell the Turks like, Hey, we're putting people at these gates and you know, they, whatever they let us. And as we're doing this assessment is when we start taking contact from outside the city. So we had moved some, some people, I think it was alpha company to berm gate within five minutes of them getting there, we started taking relatively accurate sniper fire. And, you know, as we're, as we're driving around, we'd get out and stop and we'd get shot at, we get back in the vehicle continue to drive around. So we ended up, we end up with Marines at Northgate, Eastgate, and Abbeygate, just as additional security. At Abbeygate, there was a, an incident where a Dishka was up in the mountains to the north and was engaging. We think it was trying to shoot the planes, but whoever was shooting it was not very good. They were missing the planes, but they were hitting Abbeygate while we were there. Uh, and a contractor, what we initially thought was a, a cell phone-sized IED was thrown over the wall and this guy picked it up and got his hand blown off. Well, what actually happened when EOD did kind of the, the post-blast analysis is they found the phone, they put the phone back together, and they realized that it wasn't an IED. It was this guy was holding his phone, and a disc around went through his phone and blew off his hand. Oof. But the, the thing that I think about the most about that, at least that time frame during that day, is that initial report of contact you know, from one of the, I, I, again, I, I think it was one of the Alpha Company Marines, and it was like just calm, cool, collected. And I think that's indicative of how the unit performed the whole time. Like, you know, it was just this Marine, like, you know, whatever call sign, this is like Beirut 3, this is whatever. We're taking accurate sniper fire from 300 degrees magnetic, seven, 800 meters. This was like, Roger, if you, if you see them, kill them. Yeah. Um, and he's like, yeah, Roger, cool. And everybody was like, it was calm. I think it was like I mentioned before, everyone was kind of keying off of the commander, right? Off of our battalion commander, who he also, you know, just super cool, calm, collected. You know, same thing with my gunner who was out doing the assessment as well. And it just kind of trickled down and everybody, you know, kind of stayed calm. And But yeah, so that we, we basically assume external security on the afternoon of the 15th. And then things, the events start to pick up relatively quickly from there. So. The Army, the Task Force Polar Bear guys, I think they go down south to the to the civilian terminal. They get in a, in a gunfight down there. People start to flood into the airfield. And, you know, now we're talking this is 10, 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, it's basically like all, all hands on deck. Everyone who is not actively doing something, and even the people that are, get on the airfield right now to stop this crowd from, one, fouling the airfield, and two, from getting to us. Because we, you know, we didn't know who was in this crowd at this point. Was there someone with an S vest? Was there Taliban infiltrators in the crowd? There was a ton of people with weapons in the crowd who ended up being, you know, Afghan soldiers who, who had abandoned their post. So that's when the the fight really started on the fifteenth. After some of the smaller chaotic events had kind of taken place, and something else I was thinking about uh, on the fifteenth is an event that kind of shook me that day. But if that same event had occurred, which, you know, it, it did countless times throughout the rest of the evacuation, it, it was kind of like that was business as usual. So one of the embassy staffers, uh, an Afghan, you know, his wife was outside of one of the gates. I can't remember which which gate it was, but the crowds had kind of already built up at, at Northgate, 
not so much at Eastgate yet. And we had some Marines at those gates just kind of holding it, not letting anybody in. We weren't starting to process people yet. And, you know, this this guy comes up to he, he works through whatever channels he works through. And he ends up he ends up finding me and he's like, hey, my wife is, you know, outside. She's on the phone right now. Like, can you talk to her? She's wearing this. Like, can you guys go get her? So we we try to go get this this woman and we're basically told, no, you can't. We're not going outside the wire right now. I mean, and, and this guy like broke down crying and like, um, it was like, it was, it was hard, uh, at that point to see, you know, this, this man who, who's desperately trying to get his family out of, out of Kabul and we couldn't make it happen. I think eventually we did, we did get her, but you know, there was several days later, but it just, it kind of. I felt disappointed and 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 frustrated. And you know, I, I thought like, man, if this is what this is gonna be like, this is gonna be difficult. But very quickly, like your metric for for stress and your metric for what causes you to get emotional changes in a situation like that. Yeah, it's just one of those things I I had I hadn't talked about before in any of the interviews or anything I've done for this. So that was kind of like the tone setter for me for the day was that incident. So anyway, uh, you know we we put all the Marines that we can on the airfield to to push the the crowd back. Uh, I mean, there's there's staff guys from the JTF that are running out there as well. There's you know a few CLB Marines that are out there, and then it's it's primarily Alpha Company. And some of Charlie that we pulled off of the gates to go down to like bare minimum manning. At this point, you know, we we don't have the ability to execute a rest plan. So, you know, we we fight these people back for uh, you know all night long or into the early morning. We get them corralled. And this is a one of those things that kind of made me think and be very conscious of where where I position myself to best support the Marines uh, and then the mission as a whole that first night, like my, everything in my gut was telling me to go onto the airfield. And I, I would have gone onto the airfield that night, but my time commander like explicitly said, you're not allowed to come out here. I need you back here, like doing your job. Right. So that's a little frustrating. Um, but as the opso, I'm the only person who can do that stuff. Right. So if I go out to the airfield, I'm, I'm another body who can push people back, but there's hundreds of people out there who can do that. So that's where I found myself that night. I assume you're also watching events unfold on many of these closed circuit cameras and just seeing the, the chaos, you know, sprawling across the airfield and, you know, maybe able to tell like, Oh, those are, those are one, eight Marines. What's going on in your head as you're trying to help fight the battalion push communication to, to those who need it and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, so I think my, my biggest priority was establishing like a solid line of communication with the guys on the ground so that I can battle track where, where everybody is so that I know when we get extra support or extra resources, where those people need to get pushed to communications were not great for whatever reason, our, our radios were just not working that well our tactical communication. So we, we actually ended up using for the most part, a signal group chat 
to do C2 of the airfield. Like, so we'd get a message, you know, like they're breaking loose near X position. We'd mark it on the map. And then, you know, my second priority was, was getting the other nations that we were there to send their people out to the airfield just to like put more bodies on there. Cause the crowd kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and, and while that's occurring on the, on the 15th, there's some gunfights that are starting to occur in different parts of the crowd from people out, you know, from people outside of the airfield, you know, in various buildings or at some points inside the airfield. So I, I can't remember what day this was. It was either the night of the 15th or the night of the 16th. It was probably the night of the 16th because my battalion commander had forbidden me from <laughs> going on the airfield. But I was able to like wrangle up like a hundred Brits and like some Germans just some like random folks. And I was like, y'all like working with like through their countries and stuff like that. And I'm like, y'all need to come with me like right now to the airfield. So I took them out to the airfield at night and I linked them up with somebody just to put some more bodies on the airfield. And it was, I mean, it was just chaos out there. But yeah. My, my primary focus was making sure that the, the guys on the ground who were doing the work had what they needed to the best extent possible. And that the the gravity of the situation was being relayed to the appropriate people, internal to uh, to HKIA and external, to kind of give them the sense of urgency that the situation required to get us the things that we needed. So a major concern, maybe the concern, is getting control of that airfield. And in Escape from Kabul and HBO <clears throat> documentary. You were featured on you said if we'd lost that airfield i have no doubt that we would have all died could you talk more about your your thoughts there yeah i, I talked about the terrain earlier and, and there was no real exfil plan right there was no the taliban controlled the city and there's you know tens of thousands of these of these guys the airfield was our lifeline to the outside world it brought in our food, it brought in our our water, it brought in our ammo, it brought in the extra people that we needed to actually secure the airfield. I mean, we estimated that you needed two regiments to secure this airfield, essentially. And we knew we weren't going to get that. We, you know, we we thought we could make it work with what we had organically in the BLT and and what uh the SP Magtaf GCE 21 was gonna bring in. But yeah, the airfield. The airfield was the mission, and not only from an evacuation standpoint, but from a a resupply standpoint as well. So if 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 that airfield had been overrun and, and the folks had gotten you know all the way into the compound of of North Hkia, the top of the the blue submarine that I talked to, I'm I'm you know fairly confident that we would have been infiltrated and we would have been attacked and. You know, we had some contingency plans for uh, establishing what we call the Alamo in North Hkia, but if we weren't able to get more people in, we knew that we were going to lose this thing, and if we lost that thing, we were going to we were going to die. So you're you're in the jock while the airfield's being cleared, <clears throat> trying to maintain clear communication, trying to get additional bodies on the field to to push people out. How, from your perspective, how chaotic is that? Is that situation? It's incredibly 
chaotic. I mean, one, because you're, you're trying to put pieces of information together from a signal, from signal messages, you know, like people are, are running in and out, you know, bringing you other bits of information. So you're, you're trying to piece this thing together. You're trying to push resources that you, that you need to get to the Marines. And I mean, the, the guys were, I mean, at this point, you know, I've, we had all pretty much been awake for 72 hours, very, you know, limited food, limited water, and your ability to make decisions, it, everything just gets more difficult from a mental standpoint. Then you couple that with the physical exertion of, of physically, in some cases, fighting people you know, with your, with your fists, with your rifles, you know, with your, with your feet, whatever you have available to you to combat some of these folks. And, you know, for the most part, the, the crowd, the crowd was just desperate. They weren't necessarily like trying to, to hurt the Marines. Some, in some cases, yes, I think you could say that some of the civilians like were trying to, trying to hurt the Marines. But I mean, like, it's just a, it's just a massive surge of people and you have to do what you can to, to push them back and you you'd get them pushed back and corralled and we'd set up some sea wire and then, you know, they, they'd find a, they'd find a hole or there just wasn't enough Marines to, to hold, to hold the crowd back. But yeah, just, it, it's like, I talked about changing your metric for stress, that like that definitely changes what, what you think is stressful very quickly. So eventually the Afghan National Strike Unit helps to clear the airfield using some heavy-handed methods. My understanding is they ran over people with vehicles, they shot others. Did you watch this unfold from afar? I mean, are you seeing this on, on the cameras? Uh, had you gone outside? Yeah, so at, at some point, I think this was the 16th maybe, we got word that there was this massive convoy of vehicles bringing you know 11 1200 of these afghan special forces guys uh, who were coming to the airfield and they were going to assist us and our initial thought was like we can use all the help we can get i don't think any of us knew that, that was going to happen until it happened they're supposed to be here at you know x time that time happens it, it, they don't get there another hour another hour finally these guys show up and we do some initial kind of communication with them and they're basically like, all right, we're, we're going to go clear this airfield. So I mean, it's not like they, they told anybody like we're going to clear this airfield by running people over and, and executing them with pistol shots to the head while they're on their knees and, you know, spraying them with, with PKM fire. They just went and did it. And the Marines kind of took a, took a step back and just watched this occur. So I, I don't even I don't even think there was time to raise an objection. Mm. It just happened, and all you could do is is watch. I, I can only imagine how horrific that is for I mean, anybody. But if you're a eighteen, nineteen year old lance corporal and you know, trying to restore some some order to the situation, and you hear these Afghan soft guys are going to help, but the way they're helping is definitely not in line with things that Marines would do but they do get the airfield cleared, right? Yeah. And that's what's, that's, what's horrible about it. Like we were relieved that the airfield was cleared 
we were at breaking point. Like we could not have, we could not have done that for another 24 hours. We could not have maintained what we were doing. We, it, we just weren't like we're at the limits of, of your human capability. Sure. And we just, we couldn't have done it. So as horrible as it sounds, we were, we were relieved that the airfield was cleared. And the sun came up the next day and there was no one on the airfield. And we established a little defense to the south because we weren't entirely sure if the crowd was going to come back. And the crowd, the crowd did not come back. My understanding of timelines gets a little hazy here, but I've, I've read that on 16 August, the Taliban offers to help clear the airfield of civilians, but it sounds like the NSU had already done that. So could you maybe clear up that, that confusion? What, at what point did the Taliban offer their assistance and, and in what manner, what, what are they trying to help with? So from, from what I understand, the two-star Navy Admiral and the CIA director had met with, in some form or fashion, a very senior Taliban commander. I don't know if it was necessarily an offer for help and more so a mutual agreement that to facilitate us getting out of your country and you taking back over, it is in both parties' interest for you to assist us with this evacuation process rather than be an antagonist. You know, so I, I don't, I honestly, I don't remember if Taliban guys came onto the airfield. They, they may have to help us. Some Taliban guys did come onto the airfield and they died. We killed them. But I don't, I don't remember them coming onto the airfield and that coinciding with the NSU clearing the airfield. It may have occurred. I just, I just don't remember. But the NSU and the Taliban, they, they don't like each other very much, right? So I don't, I don't think that, I think if that had occurred, it would not have been, it would have been bad if both of them were on the airfield at the same time. You know, whether that's the 16th or the, the 17th, my, my timeline on that is, is also hazy. What we were basically told is the Taliban was going to provide essentially an outer cordon of the airfield to help us manage the crowds and conduct the evacuation. What's your reaction to that news and how does the battalion try to get Marines, for lack of a better term, bought into the idea of working with the Taliban? I, I don't know if I had a, a reaction. It was, it was kind of like, because so, so many strange things had, had occurred. That when, I, when I heard this, it was, I was just kind of like, okay, whatever. Like they're, now they're yeah. another asset. Yeah, they're, yeah. Like, Okay, cool. Um, give me the details. You know, I passed to the Marines, like, hey, the Taliban are now providing external security for us. Please stop killing them. There was more to it than that, but that's essentially what it was. I, I didn't have any kind of emotional reaction to it. Like these guys are now need to be part of my calculus and how I employ the battalion tactically, not from an adversarial standpoint, but from a, a neutral standpoint. So I, I know. That may sound weird to a lot of people, but there wasn't time to you know, dwell on it emotionally. Like we we have a job to do, so whatever. Let's just move on and get it done. By the time conditions change and the Taliban are now assisting and and working with the evacuation force, 
I mean, what's your state? You've been up for days. You mentioned being at the end of your physical limits. I mean, how are you feeling? What's the the mood of the battalion as, as far as morale? For me personally, yeah, I was I was finding it very difficult to uh, to make to make decisions. You know, I, I I wore a Fitbit watch at the time. I went back and and looked at it as I was preparing for this, and from the thirteenth of August to the seventeenth of August, I have like no recorded sleep data on that watch. You know, I I know I was able to get like you know fifteen minutes here, you know that type of thing, but yeah, after. 96 hours of being awake, it's just a little difficult to kind of make decisions and, and your, your cognitive processes slow down. But once the airfield gets cleared from a morale perspective in the battalion, from what I observed, there was a little uptick, I think, because people were able to get some rest, get some food, get some water. But I think everyone kind of realized that this is this is just beginning. And now we can actually do the job we came here to do. But I mean, morale, morale never dipped. I think morale was high the whole time, but you know, it had probably gone down a bit dealing with the situation we had dealt with for the past 72 hours. But yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, the Marines were in good spirits. I, I, I do know that there was some confusion, especially down at the lower levels. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. You, you think you, you pass the information as clearly, as concisely as you can, and the end user gets something mildly similar to what you intended to pass. But I mean, I don't know, that unit 1-8 was just such a good unit, man. Like every company commander was solid. The battalion staff was solid. The S shops, like all, everyone in that unit was just so good. I've never been, and I don't, I, hopefully I will be, but I don't know if I'll ever be in a unit again that was that had been through the things that we had been through up to that point in training. I mean, we had, we had been preparing for this moment and in some cases for four years, the key people in place for four years doing this, getting ready for this moment, all the, the training and the camaraderie we had built in the, so I don't know, we were just, we were just ready. We were just ready for you. You could have thrown any problem set at that battalion and, somehow some way we would have figured it out after one eight gets relieved from airfield security the battalion mans the north and east gates if i'm not mistaken could you talk about what you're doing during this time what are some of the challenges you're facing some of the tough decisions you have to make as the the companies are manning those gates yeah so initially we held all three gates we had north gate east gate and abbey gate once we get additional forces in, you know, I think by the 17th or the 18th, we have the majority of the BLT on the ground with us. You know, I think the majority of 2-1 is also there. And then, you know, we have some elements of the 18th Airborne Corps that have also been trickling in throughout this whole process. And I, I think we're going to come to some of the some of the things that I think are probably relevant to discuss about the Army in general. But for us, we realize that we cannot we cannot man all three gates, maintain security on those three gates, and also simultaneously process the evacuees and maintain our own internal security posture on the airfield. So the decision is made to give 2-1 Abbey Gate, and 1-8 is going to take North Gate and East Gate. 
you know, once the airfield had been cleared, I think Bravo Company, who was in, I, I can't remember when they got there, but they had been on Northgate for about, you know, 24 to 28 hours straight. So a, a, a different problem set that they're dealing with, but as equally as complex as the airfield situation. I honestly, I cannot remember who was on Eastgate at this point, but it was a unit. It might have been some of Charlie Company who was down at Eastgate. So what we basically had to do at that point was kind of take a tactical pause and, and reset the force to actually, to set conditions to execute the NEO. So this is when I spoke about earlier, I, I had a, a whiteboard. I drew up all the units that I currently had tactical control over, which ebbed and flowed throughout the, throughout the entire operation, you know, from at one point I had all nine, all nine of our maneuver elements. And I say nine because we, we created a provisional rifle company out of H and S. I mean, every, everyone on the ground was a, was a rifleman. I had those nine elements that were organic to the BLT. I had at some points I had a company from two, one that I was in tactical control of, or that the battalion was in tactical control of. And then depending on who you talk to, Task Force Wild Boar and Polar Bear also fell under my tactical control. So we basically had to reposture the force, give back units to people that they were supposed to be controlled by, uh, and establish a rhythm and a sequence for how we were going to rotate security at the gates internally, uh, how we were going to establish the comfort area, which was uh, in the western portion of the airfield, you know, as, as an additional holding area, how we were going to secure the area around the terminal, which also had, you know, at some points, 2,000 refugees in it or evacuees. So that's, that's what I was doing during that time and establishing which, you know, Alpha and Bravo were at Northgate, Charlie Company and LAR at Eastgate. The recon company had been doing some niche kind of things for us. So we actually detached them and attached them to the 2-4-MU headquarters and they became a special recovery team. Our Artie battery established the comfort area. Our 81 platoon did security of the actual terminal itself. Our provisional rifle platoon from H&S assisted them with that security and also helped secure the actual ECC site proper. And then we had our, our CAT platoon as basically our QRF internal to the battalion. So we tried to keep them as free as possible. We, we broke them down, I think, into three sections. And I had one on QRF. One was doing roving patrols because there was a ton of wall jumpers that were coming over the walls and then one on rest. So resetting the force and organizing us to appropriately conduct the evacuation was my focus during that time. Did you ever find yourself going to any of the gates? And if so, what were your experiences there like? Yeah, I, I went to all the all the gates. So at, at Abbey Gate, we used our engineers to build a pretty elaborate obstacle to help flow funnel the people. And we called it the Cloverleaf obstacle. And, you know, that engineer platoon, they were just, they were just outstanding. At Eastgate, the gate is, is kind of designed like a, there's two large walls that encompass a road that probably leads up to the gate for about a hundred meters. And then the gate itself is like a big metal door that swings open. So things at Eastgate were, I would say, calmer than Northgate. Eastgate is where we also had the Taliban directly working with uh, our Marines that were down there. And I say calm, but calm is a relative term. I think it was calmer because the frontage of the gate was narrower. So it was not as chaotic as Northgate was. But again, it presented its own challenges unique to that gate. 
in my opinion, Northgate was the most difficult gate to secure from a tactical standpoint. Uh, I mentioned that that massive road system that was up to the north. And the road is, like I said, about 10 feet from the gate itself. Adjacent to Northgate, there was a, a canal, like a wastewater canal. And at any gate you went to, the first thing that you kind of encountered was just like the smell, just the the smell of like urine and feces and trash and blood. And that's the first thing that hits you. And the second thing that hits you is the desperation of the people. You know, the first time I went to Northgate, I'm walking out and Alpha Company and Bravo Company are, are, are ripping. And as I'm as I'm about to walk through the gate, a guy is being carried in to the gate. Now, I, I didn't mention that at Northgate, we had the NSU guys up there with us. Is the Taliban, I don't know if they refused to work with us at Northgate uh, because the NSU guys were there. I think they didn't like working with the guys in, in green frogs because we were the ones on the airfield during the, the gunfights and we had killed, you know, I don't know, maybe a, in total over those two days, maybe a squad, squad reinforced of guys both on the airfield and outside the airfield. So I don't, I don't know if that was the reason for it. You know, I don't know if they didn't want to shut down traffic on that road, whatever the case was. So we had NSU guys up there who were, again, using more heavy-handed techniques. So this guy's coming back into the gate, uh, and his his foot is one of his like the top half of his one of his feet is blown off because the NSU guys were shooting their AKs and their pistols into the ground like inches from the people. And sometimes they would not shoot the ground. They would shoot a person. So he gets brought in, we, you know, we, we treat him. And then you just go outside the gate at, at Northgate and it's just pure chaos. Like we, you know, we use the, like a phalanx technique or like a, a shield wall technique to push these people back, establish a little razor wire perimeter. The crowd would surge. People would get knocked into the razor wire, you know, there's you know, women and children who are like pinned in the razor wire. Marines are employing non-lethal munitions to try to get the crowd to back up off of those people so they could get them out. And that that was kind of like the ebb and flow, right? The, the crowd would surge forward. The Marines would have to fall back. The Marines would, you know, throw tear gas or or CS gas or and, and non-lethal munitions. The crowd would become disoriented. The Marines would bust through the gate at North Gate, push the crowd back, reestablish the perimeter, and then start to try to pull people through the through the wire. So the, the gates were chaos. The gates were were one of the, I think, one of the extremes of the human condition because it's just desperate people doing desperate things to get out of a desperate situation. Yeah, the, the gates were the gates were chaos. Chaos. One part of that chaos included Marines taking rejected civilians back to the crowd. You know, they they might come in, not have the proper paperwork documents, what have you, and have to be sent back. Was that something that, that you saw? Yeah, that was, I think that was one of the hardest things that the Marines had to deal with. At one point in time, because we, we were tracking by hour how many people we were pulling through the gates. And when we were using a, a pretty rigorous screening process, it was somewhere between 30 and 35 an hour that we were getting through the gates. You know, and I think the initial target for the evacuation was like 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people, something like that. And that was just, we weren't going to get that number of people out 
with that volume of people coming in. I, you know, I don't know where this decision was made much higher than my level. I would probably venture to guess that this decision came from someone who wasn't in Afghanistan at the time. The word that came down to us was like, put your foot on the gas. So we started just ripping people in as fast as we could. And that, you know, the 30 per hour went up to like 150, 200 per hour pretty rapidly. And we quickly found ourselves in a position where we had 15 to 20,000 people on the airfield and flights began to slow down how many people we could like. So we, we basically had all these people on the airfield that we could not get out at the time for whatever reason. Once the flight started coming back in, the thing that I think made it really difficult is we had promised these people that were on the airfield, like, you guys are safe. You're out of the situation that you're in. We're going to take care of you. And we started getting Department of State people out to the various holding areas that we had. You know, once they screened the people, I had to take them back to the gates. Like, we didn't tell them, you know, which group was going where. Because I think that would have probably started an internal riot, which would have led to the fouling of the airfield, which compromises our ability to accomplish our mission. Yeah, so one of the most difficult things I think the Marines had to do was take those families, you know, those women and children back to the gate that they just came in from and push them back out. And I I know a lot of Marines are probably still dealing with with that today, like pushing a, a woman with her baby back out into the chaos after we had promised them that they were going to be safe. We were going to take care of them. Very, very difficult. And you go through a whole range of emotions on it, but you know, it's what we, it's what we had to do to accomplish the mission. I'm sure you've talked with the Marines of one eight many times while you were there, after you were there, is there anything you'd want to say to folks, whether they're in or out who may be struggling with some of the things they had to do? It's okay not to be okay. It's not a sign of weakness. I think over the years, maybe society in general, maybe the military has has kind of done a, a good job of removing the stigma of seeking help. Yeah, so I mean it's it's okay not to to be okay and you know, reach out to someone, whether that's a, a buddy, whether that's professional help. Cause the things that we saw and did over there are not natural for human beings to do i would say you know an 18 19 year old lance corporal sending a family out back into kabul to what could be a a death sentence it's tough so it's tough and you know it's okay not to not to be okay with that right just reach out to somebody is what i would say one of the things you said in the Escape from Kabul documentary was we were aggressive. We took a very aggressive stance with our security, CS gas, rubber bullets fired from shotguns, and you talked a little bit about this already. There was a statement from Army Command Sergeant Major Banfield, who was at HKIA during the NEO, and I'm going to read this passage. It comes from the documents that were produced as a result of the investigation into the Abigate bombing. But from this command sergeant major, Northgate was the most violent of the gates. The crowd up there was violent since the first time I went on the 15th or 16th. There are Marines from the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit up there. 
in my opinion, is they started two rungs higher on the ladder of escalation than the Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force did at the Easton Abbey Gates. From the beginning, it appeared to me that they were at a higher state in the way they dealt with the crowd. It was a bit heavier handed with yelling and screaming than it was at Abbey Gate. Full disclosure, this was my first non-combatant evacuation operation or large crowd control event. I did crowd control training 20 years ago with riot gear, but that gear and non-lethals were not widely available during this operation. The passage continues, but I just wanted to get your reaction to that. You mentioned 1-8 was aggressive. The command sergeant major is saying, what I'm reading is it's too aggressive. What are your thoughts? So I'm going to try to uh, explain this as tactfully as I can, especially with the context of what I do in my current my current role. So while we were on the airfield, engaged in essentially hand-to-hand combat with the Afghans, there was a battalion of 82nd Airborne who had arrived, who we begged to support us on the airfield. And they never came out of their compound. They just didn't come out. I don't know why. I had heard things from, we're waiting for our command and control to get here. We're waiting to set up our communications. They never came out. And I'm sure they had a a good reason for not coming out and and helping us on the airfield. You know, as, as far as the Sergeant Major being at the gates on the 15th or the 16th, that's impossible because we weren't at the gates at that point. We weren't doing crowd control at the gates at that point. We were on the airfield. You know, so maybe if those guys had been in the same positions that we had been in, they would have understood why we took such an aggressive posture as we did. You also have to understand, which we've kind of discussed, the terrain at Northgate was different than the other gates in that a VBID could roll up into the crowd and destroy everyone and everything at that gate. We were aggressive at that gate because we wanted to keep Marines alive. If we started two rungs higher, right, then what happened at Eastgate and Abbeygate, I think that's a combination of the things that we had already seen and done, the threat reporting we were getting at Northgate, for example, Anytime we got a report of, we got a description of a potential VBID, our sniper platoon was at Northgate and we disabled the vehicle. There was dozens of disabled vehicles all over that area because we were not taking any risks. This is already inherently a risky situation. The Marines are essentially in the city of Kabul on the street with a thin strip of razor wire between them and between the crowd. We also took sniper fire at Northgate and one of the NSU, one of the Afghan commando guys was killed. He was shot in the chest, which triggered a little firefight up at Northgate, right? So we we were aggressive there because we had to be aggressive because we wanted to keep Marines alive. You know, so to hear you read that and to, to read it myself, to be honest, it's a little frustrating because if, we had received the assistance that we requested numerous times. If we had the forces that we needed to come in on the timeline that we needed them to come in on, rather than our planes being 
taken from us to give to be given to the 82nd Airborne for them not to participate as fully in the initial stages of the operation as we would have liked them to, maybe that Sergeant Major would feel a little bit different about the posture that we had at Northgate. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll wrap it up with that. I know it's not an easy thing to hear about or talk about, and I appreciate you being willing to do so. Yeah, absolutely. During the evacuation, how are you effectively leading and, and commanding Marines in the face of so much ambiguity and confusion and danger? Do you find yourself relying on concepts and tools in MCDP-1, MCDP-1-3, you know, things like Commander's Intent? You've talked a little bit about the deep trust built among the more senior leaders, but what about tempo, services, and gaps? Are these things that you're actively using? 100%. I think it all goes back to just the battalion's like maneuver warfare mindset, pushing as much decision-making authority and ability down to the lowest level. The picture that we have in the jock is one piece of the story, but you have to trust the guy on the ground because they're the one seeing it. They're the one doing it. They're the one executing it. They need to have as wide of a latitude as they can to accomplish the intent to the best of their ability with the resources, people that they have available, and that the circumstances, as they change and flex, they need to be able to change and flex as well. So as I was thinking about this yesterday, I, I think the thing that enabled us to be as flexible and as successful as we were, and I hope this is true, and I'll use, I think I want to use the phrase trust equity here. I had tried very deliberately to build strong relationships with all of the company commanders. As a lesson learned from previous units, I, I knew that that was something I needed to establish and maintain those relationships with those guys. And always up to this point, you know, always give them the opportunity to push back against the plans that the battalion was making, to push back against the tasking that I was giving them in like an open forum where we will come to a mutual agreement on something so that when the time comes, when I don't have the time to explain the why to you, all I have time to do is, you know, hey, Alpha Company, I need you to do this. I don't have the time to tell you why, just do it. They know that if there was another way, if there was a better solution, there was something that I could do to better posture them for success that I would I have already thought about it and I've already discounted it, whatever, right? And the decision that that has been made is the sometimes the best worst option. And by building up that trust equity with those guys, I would like to think that I would I'm not even gonna say I would like to think this is what happened. There wasn't we just executed because of the trust equity that I think we had developed that I had developed with them. We were 100 percent operating off of intent. You know, I would task a company with doing X and on the ground, they would end up doing Y, but it still met the intent. Mm -hmm. There was no, like, there wasn't a whole lot of explicit communication on that. It. it was a lot of implicit, this is what I need you to do. And they went and figured out how to do it. Yeah. And it's something that you can't just practice maneuver warfare when it's time to do warfare stuff. You have to do it in everything that you do, you know, from like a staff meeting to a planning session, to the way that you run an organization, if you're not imbuing that entire organization with a maneuver warfare mindset, 
when it's time to actually do it, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall back to the level of your preparation. And we were prepared to execute in a disaggregated, chaotic environment because we operated like that on a daily basis. What are you doing morning of the 26th, the, the day of the, the Abbey Gate bombing? The morning of the 26th, I am focused on maintaining internal security of HKIA, the large amount of refugees or uh, evacuees that we have on the airfield. I am monitoring the situation at North and East Gates. Threat reporting was increasing. We got various reports in the days leading up to and on that day that there was going to be some sort of attack. We were anticipating a VBID attack. You know, so just making sure that I have my forces postured as, as best we can be to deal with that and making sure, you know, my QRF forces are, are on a heightened state of alert and that we're, you know, kind of pre-positioned to support our two gates and then, you know, any other threats that may arise internal to the airfield. How do you respond to the bombing at, at Abbey Gate? So uh, I remember uh, watching a drone feed and seeing a, a dust cloud come up in vicinity of Abbey Gate and knowing that something just happened down there. And, you know, as my initial reaction was to what can I do to support 2-1 down at Abbey Gate? But I had to, I physically had to, I physically like took a step back from watching these, watching kind of the situation develop because everyone is now getting sucked into this, this problem. So I, I, by me taking that physical step back, it forced me to think about what is no one else thinking about right now? If I am the enemy and I know the TTPs that American forces use, they know that everyone's going to get sucked into that problem. So what is, what is it that we're not thinking about here that the enemy probably is thinking about? And my attention immediately shifted, and I was able to shift the attention of pretty much the entire BLT for the most part to thinking about the next thing, the follow-on attack, the V-bit at Northgate, the mortars uh, impacting at Eastgate. So I postured the force to do that. I think I sent a cat section down to Abbeygate, but by that point, I mean, 2-1 had their own assets, they had their own support. You know, the task force talent air guys started flying helicopters down there to move the people across the airfield to the hospital that was in North H. Kaya. Yeah, but my focus turned to trying to be the person that thought about the enemy's next move. Fortunately, that that didn't come. But yeah, posturing the force to to be ready for what was next, not what was now. Did you feel any internal tension or a sense of being pulled in two directions when you realized that the bombing had occurred? Hey, there are Marines hurt, killed, other folks needing assistance. We got to help them. But what's coming next? I need to also be prepared for, as you said, the follow-on attack, the enemy follow-on actions. Did, did you feel any sort of struggle? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you you want to... You want to help. You want to. You want to push your guys down there. You want to go down there yourself. You want to take care of your brothers and your sisters that are down there. But I mean, if we had surged our resources down there, we would have been. It would have been more harm than good 
there was one road that led back to the hospital that you had to kind of drive around the airfield on. There was already a traffic jam on that road from people trying to get down there to help. 2-1 had all the right things in place, all the right people. And that, that's, that, was, a, that was a really, a really good battalion as well. And I knew that with everyone else focusing on them and with their own internal resources and capabilities, they were going to be able to, to do what they needed to do down there to take care of their Marines and sailors. Now, once they got up to us or up to the area that we were in, we did pull Marines off of security and doing different things to assist with like carrying the the wounded Marines into the hospital, like, you know, stretcher bearers and, and stuff like that. So we did give resources in, in that sense. Yeah, you want to help, but you don't want to, you run into the, the principle of diminishing returns where you throw more people at a problem than are needed and things become less efficient. So yeah, definitely torn, but still trying to to maintain my focus on like we talked about what what could happen next what are you doing from 27 august to 31 august a lot of my time was taken up by internal internal security breaches so people climbing over the wall you know having to send units out to go capture these people again the threat reporting continued after the bombing so we were fairly concerned about someone climbing over the wall you know, with some sort of suicide device, you know, whether that's in a backpack or vest or whatever. So we actually, we requested and were granted a change to the ROE that we could use lethal force to engage anyone who came over the wall. The Marines knew this and to their credit, they maintained a sense of composure and did not use lethal force against any of the people that came over the walls in those next couple of days, which was difficult, especially after you you know, see the, the 13 caskets get carried out to a, a C-17 the morning of the 27th. But they maintain their composure. They use good judgment. You know, we detained those folks. So that took a lot of my time. We also started working with elements of the 82nd Airborne who were going to uh, to rip us out at the gates. We turned to the the destruction plan, planning for that. So still plenty of stuff going on. But the focus was really beginning to turn to the retrograde of the force at that point. So to return to uh, Command Sergeant Major Banfield, another statement from him, this focusing on the demilitarization process. He says, the destruction was wild. Marines were flipping cars. I don't know where the mindset came from, maybe from the early hot wiring of cars. Leadership, myself included, had spoken about how it was in American interest to leave a functional airport. There was a culture of not respecting equipment on the ground, everywhere you went was destruction. It takes engaged leaders to stop that and explain that it is not in our best interest to just destroy things. I realize that may come across as inflammatory and antagonistic, but I would like to hear your response to that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think again, if you know, maybe if uh, maybe if that sergeant major had been at the gates or been on the airfield, maybe he would think about that a little bit differently. Now, what I will say about the destruction plan is I will agree in the sense that it it did kind of get out of hand. I think a lot of that was some of the pent up frustration from some of the Marines, especially from uh, from two one who didn't really get the opportunity to vent their frustration on the enemy, so to speak, after they were attacked. So, you know, did it get out of hand? Yeah. 
Is it in American interest to leave a functioning airport? I think that's debatable. Now, what I can say is that, uh, you know, we, one eight, we tried to destroy all the military equipment that we could find on the airfield while minimizing the damage to some of the infrastructure that we were currently using, you know, like the water treatment plant that was on the, on the base, which ended up getting damaged anyway. So destruction plan, like I said, probably went a little overboard, but I think you have to understand the position that some of the Marines were in. And I think they, they maybe vented a little bit more of their frustration than they should. Now, what that Sergeant Major doesn't talk about is uh, the Taliban communicating to the 18th Airborne Corps that they were not happy with the amount of trash that was left on the airfield. That doesn't communicate that unit's commander. And we haven't really talked about command relationships, but they were uh, very confusing. Us getting the order to clean up the trash on the airfield for the Taliban. 1-8 was ordered um, to clean up trash? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, in some of these holding areas that we had, uh, it was just talked about the smell at the gates. It was like that around the the aircraft terminal as well. I mean, at some points there were, you know, one, 2,000 people out there. I mean, and we were, you know, they had MRE trash, like things they couldn't, they, I mean, some of these people brought like their whole house with them. I mean, so there's like just mountains of trash intermixed with feces and urine, you know, whatever else. From my understanding, and I, I could be off in this, the Taliban were, were not satisfied with how the state of the airfield was. Yeah, so 1-8, we, uh, as Marines were getting ready to fly out, one of their tasks as they were waiting for the air, or the airplanes to come was to load trash into, uh, into trucks and things that we had commandeered, acquired throughout the airfield, uh, and to take those and, and dump them somewhere. Yeah, so we the Marines were, were pissed about it. I was pissed about it. My commander was pissed about it. Everybody was mad about it. But, you know, but an order is an order. You know, we all went out there and cleaned up poop for the Taliban. I can't, I can't imagine the frustration and anger that caused. Yeah, still, still, still there. Yeah, yeah. When it goes to Kuwait after Kabul... What did you observe in the battalion's Marines in the aftermath of this really harrowing mission? I mean, how are they dealing with what they'd seen and done? How are you coping in the the mission's aftermath? I think there was a... It was like the Marines had all aged about 10 years. There wasn't as much... I'm trying to think of the right word. There wasn't as much like... Like they weren't as vibrant as they had as they were before. It was a really subdued type of atmosphere. It's not not as light or as much levity that you might come yes. to expect from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I think everyone was kind of in their own way dealing with the gravity of the situation. So you know whether it was I don't know who requested it the MU Second Marine Division, the MEF I don't know, but they sent a bunch of mental health professionals out to Kuwait, which I think was a good thing because a lot of people talked to them. You know, were able to kind of use them to help process the situation that they had just been through. So that was good. But yeah, definitely less lightheartedness from the battalion. For me personally, I slept a lot on the first day we got back. And after that, you know, I I was probably in the same kind of mood as the Marines, you know, just not as lighthearted as before. 
what helped me and what continues to help me, you know, not necessarily with dealing with this, but like just any, anytime, you know, I go through something is like, I, I give myself a task and like, I go execute it. So I think the rest of the time we were in Kuwait, like me and like my gunner and my ops chief and my three alpha, we like did the battalion teep for the next, for the next deployment, just something to keep us busy. Yeah, definitely. You could tell that the force had been through something and the Marines were just, I mean, they grew up on that airfield and they came back and they were different people from when they left. So these Marines made decisions and and saw things that will stick with them the rest of their lives. To what degree, in your view, should mental health checks, mental services, other kinds of support play in the lives of HKIA veterans? You know, it's it's hard to say. I think everyone has to has to cope with it in their own way. And from my experience, you know, when you try to if you try to force people to to do something like that, you could end up having the opposite effect of what you're looking for. But I would I would definitely encourage you know, anyone who was there to seek out and use the resources that are available, you know, whether it's in civilian life or, you know, on a base or, you know, out here on, on recruiting using, you know, the, the resources that are available to me in Houston, but cause it's, it's important to process these things, right? Cause you know, you may think you're, you're good. And then you, you read a statement from a army sergeant major and you get fired up about it when you got a job to do, you know? Yeah, you know, everyone has to deal with it in their own way, but I would encourage everyone to to seek out those those resources and find something that helps you to deal with it and process and not just put it down somewhere and, and leave it there because you never know when it's going to come back. What was it like returning home to Camp Lejeune? It was a little more subdued than I kind of thought it would be. I think my flight was the last flight to get back. I mean, you know, we had a good setup, you know, there were families there waiting for us. You know, we had some, uh, some guys from, uh, I think patrol base Abate that came out and like, you know, gave some of them like had food and coffee and stuff for us when we got there. It was good to, to get back, you know, not as, it was just subdued. I think people still processing the emotions and, and things of that nature. We can go back to a comment you had made about the command relations in place at HKI. You said you know they were they were confusing at times, complicated, and that's that parallels what I've read and what I've heard talking to people who were there. Why was this the case with the command relationships? Why did it seem to be complicated and confusing? There were two two star level commands that ended up on HKI. You had U.S. Forces Afghanistan Forward, which was ran by a Navy two star. And you had the 18th Airborne Corps, which is also ran by a, a two-star. From all the planning that we did, we were not aware that the 18th Airborne Corps was, one, coming, and two, that they were bringing a two-star general who was going to kind of, it, it kind of muddied up the, the command relationship water. I cannot tell you who was the target engagement authority out there, because I think it shifted at times. I think sometimes the the Navy Admiral was in charge of it. Sometimes the Army General was in charge of it. You know, for us at the battalion level, I think I was able to kind of deflect and shield the battalion from a lot of the confusion that the command relationship situation created. But for the MU, the one-star JTF command, it was confusing because we didn't, you were never sure who you needed to go to to accomplish X, Y, or Z. At a point, I think I had requested 
some Apaches to destroy a heavy machine gun or, or a mortar or something that was shooting at us. And it, I couldn't even get in contact with the right person to through the channels to, to get it done. So it was just, it was just confusing and it, it just muddied the process of some of the higher, higher, higher like functions of a, a, a command element, you know, like tasking of, of unmanned assets to, to look at different things. It was kind of unclear of who the higher, you know, who the, the higher groups of UAS were, were working for. Um, you know, fortunately we had our own organic UAS capability in the MU, which was helpful. But it was just difficult to kind of work through some of those things at the the higher echelons of command. So many Marines from 1821 brought and used their personal cell phones throughout the evacuation. I think also many had access to personal computers and internet and were regularly communicating with families and friends back home. What did you make of the decision to allow Marines access to these devices and and what effects did it have on the mission, morale, discipline, anything like that? I'm not sure if we ever made a concrete decision on like Marines will or will not bring their phones. I mean, I had my phone. All of us had our phones. Every single person had their phones with them. From that standpoint, I think honestly, it was was a good thing for us. Marines were able to get that morale boost before they went to bed, you know, by texting their spouse or whatever, letting their family knows that they're okay, they're safe, whatever. If this had been a different circumstance, right? And, and, you know, this is some near peer or peer competitor that we're fighting against. Yeah, absolutely. We, we would not be utilizing our cell phones. But in the, in the situation that we were in, I think it ultimately was a net positive for us. I mean, because one, like we wouldn't have been able to execute command and control in the airfield if we didn't have our cell phones. And two, giving the Marines a small outlet at the end of the day you know, text their girlfriend, text their boyfriend, you know, whatever the case, I think it was a net positive for us. For you, what were the most frustrating aspects of the mission at HKIA and what were the most rewarding? The most frustrating thing I think was just to be frank was working with the army. We ended up at times being task saturated because things that we were told they were supposed to be doing either weren't happening or weren't happening in a timely fashion. They were also probably more in tune with some of the non-traditional rescue methods that were occurring, you know, like the Pineapple Express and, mm-hmm. you know, all, all these all these folks who uh, who are not there in HKIA who, who may or may not be profiting from the suffering that some of the, the people who were there went through. And they would they would bring us unsearched busloads of people which now creates an additional risk for us. The communication between the Marine units and the Army units was not great. Just working through that friction, I think, was probably the most frustrating part of HKI. I mean, the most rewarding part was probably seeing the culmination of years of training and work come together, seeing the battalion grow up before your eyes seeing the the marines using outstanding judgment and discipline when in situations where lethal force was authorized and in some cases probably should have been used and the marines having the nerve and the wherewithal to understand that we didn't come here to do that we came here to help people 
and them being able to do that at, at the level that they did. I think that was probably the most rewarding thing for me. What were the, and I'm sure there were many, of the decisions you made, what were the, the toughest that you made at HKIA? Probably to close North and East Gate. One, because there are tens of thousands of these desperate people who just want to get in and we, we couldn't let them in. And two, because by making the decision to close those gates, it probably pushed it probably pushed the attack to Abbey Gate. It's just it's tough to think about how uh, decisions I made may have contributed to where that attack took place. You know, I I, I don't know if, I don't know if that's the case or not. Right. You know, it's it's one of those what if scenarios that goes through your head. So that was tough. Yeah, but tons of tough decisions, right? Like if we had kept North Gate open and the VBID rams into that gate and creates a breach in the perimeter, I may not be sitting here talking to you today. So that was tough. It's still tough. Yeah. What lessons did you take away from the NEO? How might these apply to the Marine Corps? going forward, say, in the context of Force Design 2030? When you relate it to Force Design 2030 and in, in, in the direction that the Marine Corps is trying to go, you know, with a more mature force and different, you know, equipment and all of those things, I think maybe the, the maturity of that could be beneficial and having to put young Marines in these very complex situations where they're doing things that they haven't necessarily been trained for. Maybe in a, in a, in a different context, at least from an operations officer seat, as you're thinking about how to set your force up for success on on whatever your next you know mission is, your next deployment is, your next workup, thinking about it from a perspective of most likely versus most dangerous. I think we probably could have done more to train on the most likely scenario, which was probably a HADR, Humanitarian Assistance Disaster Relief, NEO type context. And I say that because like there's always more you can do. I think one eight was probably pretty well postured to do something like that. I mean, we had every unit in the battalion had some form or fashion done non-lethal weapons training, done crowd control, things of that nature. But that's not the that's not the sexy stuff to train to. It's not, you know, nobody wants to set up role players and build serpentines with razor wire and have people walk through them and then have a, a Lance Corporal pretend like he's screening an, an SIV application. Getting back to the point, I think determining how to best allocate your unit's time between most likely COA, most dangerous COA, and finding a balance between those two that still maintains your ability to continue to progress in the the lethal aspect of what we do while simultaneously preparing yourself for maybe some lower intensity in terms of like, you know, kinetic activity operations. Jordan, what are your thoughts on the role and and value of decision games, decision forcing cases, tactical decision games in training and educating Marines for a mission like HKIA? I think they're invaluable because you cannot, you can't simulate the things that we went through. Afterwards, we talked about how would we have trained to this? And we talked about what would have been the best training for this was to put 1-8 on Davis Airfield South in Camp Lejeune 
just drop us off there and then have another infantry battalion run at us and we just get in the fight. All right, and that's not realistic. You can't you can't do that. What you can do is use things like the tools that you have available to you to get people thinking about these situations so that when they encounter them, they have a baseline from which to deviate. So I, I think, you know, they would be invaluable in a circumstance like this, especially if you took some of the the extremes that we faced in, in something that we things that we thought would never happen that actually happened. And now arming other Marines with that information, like I said, so they have that baseline to to deviate from. And they're not it's not all experiential learning. I think a future project of the Warfighting Society would aim to produce something that captures HKI veterans' experiences in the form of TDGs, in the form of DFCs. So I think there are so many really difficult situations that people faced that outside of just sharing them with other folks who were there, you know, we'll never see the light of day and never benefit Mm -hmm. current and future Marines or other service members. So that's something that we'll look to do in the future. I've heard there's some animosity between members of 1-8 and 2-1 over the Kabul evacuation. Have you seen any of this? And if so, why do you think it exists and and what can we do to address it? I mean, I've heard about a rivalry between 1-8 and 2-1. What I'll tell you what I experienced was that 2-1 was an outstanding unit. They were professional. They were proficient. They did everything the right way. Being an OPSO, when their OPSO got on the ground, we immediately kind of hit it off. And, you know, we actually both found out at the same time in Afghanistan that we were both selected for RSCO, right? So that's a guy that I still talk to to this day. You know, and unfortunately he had to, he had to leave early. He was, he was wounded in the, uh, in the attack. But, you know, if there is animosity between 1-8 and 2-1, you know, I, I would like to think it's that, it's that friendly rivalry, that, that friendly competition whenever you put two Marine units together. We all went there to do a job. We were all put in a very difficult circumstance. We all did everything that we possibly could to accomplish the mission, right? To include supporting each other with whatever we could, whenever we could. So yeah, I mean, that solid unit, a bunch of great Marines. So, you know, if there's animosity, it's unfortunate, but from what I saw and what I feel, I have no ill will towards 2-1. I thought they were an outstanding unit and I was glad to have them on my flank down there. What's the one thing you'd like other Marines, other service members to know about what 1-8 did at HKIA? What I The thing that I'd want people to, to know about most is how hard the Marines worked down there and how they were able to deal with a constantly changing environment and not bat an eye. There's a lot of talk today about this generation, like, oh, this generation is is soft and you know, this generation, you know, whatever. I saw this generation fight. I saw this generation kill. I saw this generation carry babies to get the medical attention. I saw them do the things that people say that they're unwilling to do. I witnessed it. So at least in the Marine Corps, we're gonna be fine. I think people need to know that. Like everybody thinks that the the people who came after them are soft and like, oh, your training wasn't as hard as mine. And you know, whatever it's been happening, you know, probably since 1775, right? But just know that like the Marines we got today are just as willing, just as capable of getting after it in every 
sense of that phrase uh, as any previous generation of Marines, you know, that I've worn the uniform. Last few questions for you, Jordan. Have you listened to the other Voices of HKIA podcasts? If so, what's your reaction to them? I've listened to them all, man, and I've loved them. But it's, it's I don't know if funny is the right word, but maybe it is. To hear the different perspectives of the different things that are happening. And one, how those perspectives all differ. And two, to see like Alpha Company thought this was going on. Bravo Company thought this was going on. CLB thought this was going on. And me being kind of at the center of information, just listening and be like, I don't remember it that way. Like right. I remember, but it's, it, yeah, I think funny is probably the right word to, to hear the amalgamation of all these stories and, you know, to think back to like, you know, man, did I really task Alpha Company with that? Like, that sucks. That was, <laughs> why did I do that? <laughs> like, why did I, why did I leave Bravo up there for 28 hours? But yeah, it, it's cool to kind of piece everything together from what different people were saying, different people were seeing and doing at the time. I, I think the series has been great, man. I, I really appreciate you doing it uh, and giving a voice to something that I think we may have lost an opportunity to kind of advertise the the goodness that came out of this bad situation. That means the world. Thank you. You, as we mentioned earlier, were featured on the Escape from Kabul HBO documentary. What was your reaction to first seeing that? Particularly the Taliban interviews, did you find their statements hyperbolic, exaggerated, detached from the reality that, that you knew? Yes. I mean, you know, I, I think there's definitely an, an element of bravado in the Taliban statements that weren't necessarily accurate to what was happening on the ground. It was also like, you know, really frustrating to hear them talk and some of the things they were saying about about us and about their victory and all that kind of stuff. Definitely frustrating. But the first time I saw the documentary, it was kind of like ripping the scab off an old wound. You know, it brought back a flood of, of memories. I thought they did a good job with it. I mean, that interview for me was like, you know, five or six hours long. You know, same thing for my battalion commander, my gunner, everybody else who got interviewed. Their interviews were incredibly long. So the guys, they had a, a probably a really clear picture of what was happening. I thought they did a, a pretty fair, they balanced their, the documentary fairly, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was, I thought it was good, but I haven't watched it since the first time I watched it though. Are there any aspects of one eight's time at H that we haven't touched on or that you'd like to go deeper into things that we haven't addressed or addressed sufficiently? I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One about CLB. I think they often get overlooked in this whole thing. But their Marines were out there with us working just as hard, just as long, in some cases doing more infantry-related things than logistics-related things. I just want to give that unit some credit as well. Some of the guys from that unit uh, I had been working with for four years as well. And we, couldn't have, we could not have done what we did without that unit there. And I think lastly, something that doesn't really get touched on a whole lot is the female search team that was out there. I can't remember exactly how many Marines it was, you know, 10, 12, 15 female Marines from 1821, the JTF, the CLB. Everybody who had female Marines essentially had them on the female search team. They were not trained to do that. We got them spun up, but like the staff sergeant who was in charge of that element, that's not what her, her day job is, you know? That's not what they do. That, that's, their jobs were intel analysts mess chief, calm marine, 
and they were out there on the gates with the boys getting after it just as much as they were. I think they get overlooked as well. And again, the, the 10th Mountain guys, I think a lot of Marines would have probably died on an airfield on that airfield that night if the 10th Mountain hadn't been there with us. And they had a, a PSYOPs unit out there who actually lost one of their guys. And that was probably the best Army unit that I had worked with, that PSYOPs team. I mean, those guys, they were just next level dudes. Like they didn't, they had no requirement responsibility to come and update me on stuff. And every single day, one of them was in the BLT space and like, Hey, we're seeing this at this gate. We're seeing this at this gate. These are the things that we're, you know, we're hearing as we talk to people and we would make tweaks to what we were doing based off of what these guys were telling us. And they lost one of their guys as well. Yeah. Just, just to touch on, a, you know, a few of the, the unsung heroes of H Kaya. I just wanted to mention, you know, those three groups. Jordan, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for you coming on the show and sharing your experiences about probably the the worst days of your life, I'd imagine, and um, the really challenging things you did and and the horrible things you saw. Speaking with candor and and sincerity, so I, I just want to thank you for that. And as I ask all my guests, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? No. You know, I, no, man, I, I don't think so. I think I've said everything I wanted to say. I appreciate you doing this podcast series and getting some of these stories out that are, that need to be told. So, you know, thanks for the, the time today. This has been, it's been good for me and please keep this up, man. This is awesome. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll, we'll certainly keep at it. And so thanks again, Jordan. Thanks, Damien. As a final note, Jordan sent the following message to me on March 10th, two days after hearings began in Washington over the Afghanistan withdrawal. I've edited his statement slightly for clarity. He said, quote, ever since doing the podcast, I've kept thinking about the statement that Army Sergeant Major made about us being too aggressive at the gates. I almost had myself convinced that maybe we were doing too much. But then I watched that Marine sniper, Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, testify before Congress a couple of days ago. That's why we were so aggressive. We didn't want our Marines to think that they had to ask permission to handle business. We were operating off commander's intent, or to put it a different way, at the speed of trust. We trusted our guys to make the calls on the ground. End quote. So, some final food for thought. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>